Welcome to SCD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out at our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastgrass.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. in the middle of a series, and this series is uh, about getting your house in order. And when we talk about getting your house, we don't mean like your physical house, we actually mean your life. And there's a metaphor that's throughout the scriptures that talks about building a house, and, and uh, like building a house, we're building a life. And so we've been going through the different steps of what it takes to build a house and also how that corresponds to building a life. And this week, we're going to be doing something a little bit different, is we're going to move from the foundation and the plans of the house, and that's kind of where we left off last week because we talked about, okay, what's like our ultimate goal? What, is, what are we hoping to accomplish as we build this life? And as Christians, we said that we want to be faithful followers of Jesus. That's like our ultimate goal, and so we want our lives to reflect that. So what we're going to do now is we're going to move, and we're going to go to kind of different areas of the house, and those represent different areas of our life. And so the place that I wanted to start this weekend was in the family room. So if if you are like our family, a lot of life takes place in the family room, is that is where our family gathers on a regular basis, it's where we watch TV, it's where we watch movies, it's where we play games, where we have family meetings, it's where we do our small groups, it's where they eat half of their meals, I feel like, because there's where all the crumbs are as well. And so this is like where we do life together. And so I was studying about, okay, what does it mean to be a faithful follower of Jesus in my family? And as I began to study, I wanted to make it kind of a talk about families, but I realized that I first have to talk about, or maybe even exclusively talk about, marriage. Because every family begins with a great marriage, or every faithful family begins with a faithful marriage. And so I started to think about my own experience. I started to think about what the scripture said about marriage. And here's what I, the conclusion I came to is whether you are a married person or not, marriage is important to you. It's important on a societal level, uh, but it's also important because it is, um, it's one of those things that most of us will experience at some point in our life. And if you're not a Christian, I think that this is going to be a really interesting message for you because you may come away from it and go, well, I don't really agree with most of the things that he said, to be honest. But you're going to get insight. You're going to get insight into what the scripture says about marriage and uh, why some of us may not agree with your view of marriage. And I think that's a really good thing for everybody because you can walk out going, I don't agree with what he said, but I get it. I understand where they're coming from. I I kind of get their perspective now. And so uh, I want to ask three questions. The three questions are, what is God's purpose and plan for marriage? What went wrong? And what's the solution? All right, so let's go with the first question. The first question is, what is God's purpose and plan for marriage and ultimately for the family? Last week, we talked a little bit about the logic of faith. Because I think there is a logic to faith, and I think that faith is logical. So the logic to faith goes something like this. Very simple steps. Is The first question is, does God exist? And I spent a lot of years trying to figure out that question. And I think that God does exist. And I think there's a lot of scientific and philosophical and theological and historical reasons why God exists. And and sometimes we we wrestle through those uh, here. And then the next question is, okay, well, who is Jesus? Because Jesus claimed to be that God incarnate. And so then when I had to look at the evidence, all right, well, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Because if he did, then that, you know, verifies the claims that he was making. And so I think there's a lot of good reasons to believe that historically. And, and so then we go to the next question, which is, well, then what does Jesus have to say about fill in the blank? Today, what does Jesus have to say about marriage and the family? Because if he really is that God, I better take serious what he has to say about it. So here's what he says. 
One day he's uh, discussing with some Pharisees, and it says um, that they've come to test him. And they asked, and this is in Matthew 19, 3, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So apparently there's some controversy happening. They're wrestling with this idea of divorce. Uh, Wrestling with divorce is not something new. It's been as old as marriage. And there is actually a theological debate that these Pharisees, these religious leaders are having. And they're trying to understand, okay, according to the law of Moses, are we allowed to divorce? And if so, what are the circumstances that would allow us to do this? And so Jesus is really trying to, they're trying to corner Jesus and they're trying to get him to either take a side or totally disagree with what Moses says, which would uh, make him a heretic. Jesus doesn't fall for it. Instead, here's what he says. He says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. So what Jesus does is he goes and he quotes the Genesis narrative. He says, do you not remember the creation account? All of this was explained back then, which is important because Jesus does two things. One, he affirms the creation account in Genesis. And then he says, instead of discussing what is, how about we talk about what ought to be? Instead of talking about the real circumstances, why don't we instead talk about the ideal circumstances? And this makes sense. We do this all the time. So the family room that we spend so much time in, um, it has to be cleaned roughly two to three times a day because my kids are such a disaster. And on Friday night, we had some friends that were coming over for dinner. And um, in our house, that means that it's time to freak out and stress out and um, try to get the house in order. Things we've been ignoring for months and months, we're going to fix today. Uh, And so my wife... She starts with the family room, and she gets the kids in there, and she goes, okay, I need you guys to help me put this thing back together. And they reluctantly start picking up things. And and one of the questions she asks as they're doing this is, is this where that belongs? Right? Is this where that belongs? Are your shoes supposed to be there? Is that where this pillow is supposed to be? Are there supposed to be crumbs? On, is, this where, is this how things are supposed to be? And what she's saying is, when I look at this room, the first thing that comes to my mind is the ideal. How is this supposed to look? Because let's start there, and then we're going to work our way from this mess to the way it is supposed to be. This is not just true of our living room. This is true of our relational world as well. It's okay, we've got a mess. What are we going to do? Well, let's look at where we're supposed to be, what it's supposed to look like, and then we're going to start working our way towards that. Well, that's what Jesus says. He goes, when we look at marriage and the family, let's not start with the mess that we've made of it. Let's go ahead and look at what the ideal is and then see how we can get there. So uh, let's go back to what he quoted in Genesis 127. It begins with, so God created mankind in his own image. Now, I can't understate the importance of just that little statement right there. Because if you're a Christian or not, that statement right there has changed your world. Because you would come in here and you would say, and you would believe this in your heart of hearts, that humans have intrinsic worth. That all of us are valuable. That there is not one person that is more valuable than another person. That all of us have these things called unalienable rights. But where does that come from? Where does this whole idea that we have these intrinsic rights and, and worth come from? Right here. This verse, right here. Is the reason why you and I feel like we are valuable is because we are made in God's image. And we live in a culture that has built its foundation upon Christian views and ethics is you believe that people are valuable because we're made in God's image. Well, God creates Adam first, but there's an issue. 
The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so we already get to the first purpose here of marriage, which is partnership. But notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that, they, that God made um, a suitable uh, partner because he was lonely. No, it says because he needed a helper. Well, what did he need a helper with? We got to go back a little bit. What he needed a helper with was to tend to the garden. He got a lot of gardening to do and he needs a helper. Okay, now, not just gardening. Gardening is representative of what God has called us as humans to do. What he does is he gives us the raw materials and the ability to take those raw materials and form them into something that is going to help the world and humans flourish. Ultimately, we get to be co-creators with God. And so what God does is he says, you're going to need a helper. You're going to need somebody who is is going to help you co-create along with me. And so what he does is he creates Eve. And Eve is interesting because Eve is also an image bearer of God. But she is different. She's equal in her worth, and yet she is different in almost every conceivable way. She's not a mirror image of Adam. She is a complementary one. Which, by the way, um, has always been, and still to this day is a controversial statement. That men and women are equal but different. If you went back to the first century to the pagan world, they would have been shocked by this statement. How dare you say men and women are equal? Because the way that they viewed it was we've got man, we've got women and children, and then we've got livestock. And so to say that somehow we're all equal made no sense. Now, what's funny is we still think this is a controversial statement today, but we think it for the opposite reason. Yeah, 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 we agree men and women are equal, but they're not different. In fact, they're so not different that you can decide if you want to be one or not. Whoa, don't get, don't get fired up now. Don't get fired up. Relax, relax, relax. See, what, what culture tells us is that there is no difference between the genders, and that it's this social construct, and that sexuality is preferential. But both cultures are wrong. The first century was wrong, and we're wrong. Because we are equal and we are different. And it's by design, not something that we get to decide. Now, look, if you're not a Christian, you're going, oh, I knew it. I knew it. They're just going to bash. No, no, no. Just listen, okay? I'm not bashing because I understand that this is the ideal. This isn't the real, though. This isn't the world that we live in because the world that we live in is full of confusion, especially about issues like these today. But we'll get there. Jesus continues on. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Here he quotes from Genesis chapter 2, and he talks about this concept of being one flesh. And the idea of being one flesh is you take these two different yet complementary halves and you put them together. So the image that comes to my mind, very uh, silly, but is uh, usually little girls, they'll get a best friend necklace. And like you have one half and I have the other. And when they come together, we're best friends, right? That's kind of the image is you've got these two halves. And then when you bring them together, it makes a whole. Well, that's what one flesh is, is you have these two equal yet distinctly different pairs coming together, making a whole, and they become one flesh. And what this means is their whole lives become intertwined. 
They, they are emotionally, they're financially, they're relationally, all of their hopes and their dreams and their future, everything is intertwined to become this one flesh. Continues on in verse 25, it says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So part of this one flesh, of course, is to be physically united as well. And we get to our second purpose of marriage, which is pleasure. Not just sexual gratification, of course, but to be able to enjoy one another. That as you become this one flesh, if it's done right, it is one of the most beautiful things that you can experience in this world. And you don't have to be a believer to, to understand this. Look at all of our favorite songs, our movies. What we spend so much time and energy on is this idea that there is somebody out there for us who will somehow make our life more complete. Then God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And here we see the third purpose, which is procreation. See, God's intention was for us to be co-creators along with him. Well, how much more can, uh, how much more can you partner with him in co-creating life itself? And so he says, I want you to go and I want you to have lots of kids and I want you to fill the earth and I want you to build this life together. And then here's Jesus' conclusion. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. He says, when you have this one flesh and everything is intertwined, don't try to separate it because it's going to be really, really messy. The image that comes to my mind here is um, my, my youngest son, he loves Play-Doh and he gets Play-Doh, new Play-Doh all the time. And he, he needs new Play-Doh all the time because as soon as he opens up two different Play-Dohs and they're different colors, he goes, this will look awesome together. And he smashes them together and he just goes, ah, oh, it's beautiful, isn't it? And we go, yeah, buddy, it's nice. It's ruined, but it's nice. Now, you can imagine trying to take those two pieces that have now been put together and trying to pull them apart. It's going to be messy. In fact, there's going to be parts left behind that you just can't separate. I think anyone who has experienced divorce, which is a lot of us, is you would say, yeah, that's what divorce feels like. Is we had this oneness, and now when we try to pull it apart, it is painful and it is messy. And so that's more of what is real. So we started with the ideal, right? Here's the picture. Here's what it looks like. Here's what God intended for us and for marriage and for gender and for sexuality. Here is the ideal. And then we get to the real, which is oftentimes not even close to that. Like we look at that and we go, yeah, that would be nice. But do you know anyone like that? So the second question is, well, what went wrong? Genesis 3 happened. That's what went wrong. Genesis 3, if you're around church very often, you know that is when man decides to rebel against God and, and sin, and everything in the world changes. Our relationship with God changes. We become alienated from him. But our relationship with one another also changes. So if you remember the story, right when they realize, Adam and Eve realize that they have sinned against God, they try and go and hide. And God, and this is, you know, the image that comes to my mind is it's kind of like me playing hide-and-go-seek with uh, little kids. It's like, where are you? You know, it's kind of like that, where it's like, I see you, but we'll pretend like, that's kind of what God's doing here. He says this, where are you? He answered, Adam, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? <laughs> like how he answers this. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. So what does he do immediately? 
throws her under the bus, right? Just, do you see it? First of all, God, your fault. I was fine. Naming the animals. We're having a great time. And you thought, nah, he needs a helper. Let's throw Eve in there. And look at what happened. Pretty much your fault, her fault. I take no blame in this. So the conflict of sin, uh, sin the, uh, creates conflict between us and God. And then we see it between Adam and Eve. And it doesn't stop there. In fact, it goes through every relationship throughout human history. So you look at the next uh, people, that's Cain and Abel, their sons. You know that story, Cain kills Abel. And so it affects our relationship with God, with our marriages, and now our families. Go through the Old Testament. It is one story after another of just a disaster marriage and family. I mean, things that you can't even imagine, things that I don't feel comfortable in church sharing happen throughout the Old Testament. And I would say it's pretty much been the same way ever since. Is it's just broken relationship after broken relationship, and, and this is the world that we find ourselves in. So here's the third question. What's the solution? What do we do about all these broken marriages and families? I think option number one is you abandon the whole idea. You just, you say, forget it. It's not going to work, or maybe we can redefine it so that it will work. So abandon it. We could just say, and I hear this uh, more and more, is it's an archaic patriarchal institution that served its purpose or maybe was destructive from the very beginning, and we need to just get rid of it. There's nothing good about this idea of marriage and, and the family. The problem with this is there is something within us that can't get rid of it. It's almost like God imprinted this on our souls in which we desire to be married. Like I look at people who are the most secular atheists, want nothing to do with religion, and they're all married. And I go, huh, I thought we abandoned that whole religion thing. What happened there? Eh, my wife didn't, I guess. You know, it's like, oh, okay. So there's something within us that we just, we know that we, we, we desire to be married. There's also devastating consequences as we begin to at least abandon the biblical ideal of marriage. And we can see this as our nation moves further and further away from the biblical view of marriage. The people at the end of the day who suffer are always women and children. It's always women and children who suffer as we get further and further away from the ideal. If you look at many of our social ills, they can be tracked, tracked back to this, this, this failure of a marriage. And so as we abandon what God had designed, things begin to fall apart. Okay, well, maybe we can just redefine marriage then. And that's what we see throughout the Old Testament. Uh, almost immediately, that's what man decides to do is, okay, marriage, it's a good, I think I want it. Um, okay, what if it's not just like one man and one woman, but what if it's one man and then another woman and then another woman and another woman and another woman? Would that work? Look through the Old Testament. You'll see it didn't work very well. We still do it today. We, we try to redefine marriage in order for it to work for us. Is okay, well, maybe it's not one man and one woman. Maybe it's two people of the same gender. Or maybe it's not monogamy. It's like monogamish. We try, you know. Maybe it's not as long as we both shall live. It's as long as we both shall love. We'll put a, we'll put a qualifier on there. I read an article this week. This was a marriage counselor. And they were arguing that we should drop till death do us part. They said, when that was written, people lived half as long as we do now. And so it's just an unrealistic expectation in the modern world. In fact, we're probably most likely going to have five to six partners throughout our adult life. 
That should be the standard. And I kind of understand why they feel that way, because there is something that is um, tempting about this view, because it allows me to be in control. I get to define what marriage is and the parameters. And if I fail to live up to the ideal, I'm going to be let off the hook. I'm not going to feel guilty anymore because I've redefined it to whatever I'm doing. And so I feel better about it. Another option is we can keep trying to fulfill this ideal of marriage that God has put forth. And I see these people, we got the all-American picture-perfect family. We're out there smiling. And the problem is half of those are going to end up in divorce. And the ones that don't end up in divorce doesn't mean they're great marriages. They're just stubborn and unwilling to give up on it. Jesus says, no, there's actually a whole other way that we can go about this. He says in John 3, 3, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. <laughs> what he's saying is, you are so broken and you are such a mess that there is no just fixing you. Like there's no self-help, there's no therapist, there's no, you are a complete disaster. If we go back to our analogy of the house, you can't have a simple remodel. It's got to be knocked down and built from the ground up. See, there's no such thing as marriage problems. No, there are two people with problems who get married. And so what you need is you need to fix the people in the marriage if you're going to fix the marriage itself. And so he says, your primary problem here is not that your spouse annoys you. It is that you are a person who is sinful. And so we got we to gotta, we gotta wrestle with that issue first before we're going to even deal with the rest of them. And so this is where the gospel comes in. Jesus says, I can give you new life. I'll die on the cross, and then you can have the life that I offer you. The life that I have lived, you can have. I'll trade you places. But here's what you're going to have to do, is you're going to have to give me your life, and then in trade, I will give you mine. He says, the thing that's at the center of your life right now is you. And so you're going to have to take that out, then you're going to have to put me at the center of your life instead. So every day when you get up, the question is, what does Jesus want from me? What, what can I do today to honor him? What does it look like to live like Jesus in my life? And here's the result on your marriage and your relationships. Two things. The first one is you're, you're first going to have to admit that you're so broken you can't fix yourself. That it is so bad that God himself had to step in and die on your behalf, which should produce in you an incredible amount of humility. Wow, I'm that broken? I'm that messed up? But at the same time, that God loves you so much that he's willing to do that for you, which brings a confidence. And so there's these two things that everybody thinks are in conflict, but we see perfectly united in Jesus, which is this confidence and the humility. And if you come into your relationships, especially your marriage, with a confidence and humility, you know what that's going to do? I don't need to win this argument. I don't need to get my way. I don't need constant affirmation. I'm okay the way that I am. Because you're not the source of my confidence nor my humility. Jesus is. And when you can come into relationships with that kind of assurance, it will change the way that you relate to one another. So what Jesus says is, okay, I'm going to give you this new life. And a part of this new life is you're going to be reconciled with your heavenly father. And you're going to enter into this new family of believers. And every family has family rules. And so he says, here's going to be the guiding principle. This is like the primary rule for this household. Here's what he says. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. But then he continues on. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. 
He goes, no, 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 every family says we should love each other. Oh, yeah, whatever that means. Yeah, we love each other. No, 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 no. This is like a love with legs here. This is an active love. This is a sacrificial love. Here, when you think about love, it's not just some emotion that you have towards one another. It is, it is the way that I loved you is the way that you should love one another. And what Paul does is, the Apostle Paul, he takes Jesus' commandments and all of his ideas and his life, and then he begins to tease them out and kind of give practical application to our life, one of which is our marriage and our family. And so here's what he says in Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another. So that same article that I referenced earlier about we need to get rid of the till death do us part thing, at the bottom of the article, (laughs) this is the question that the uh, author asks. If a marriage doesn't serve you anymore, what's the point of being in it? And I thought, that is a great summary of our cultural view of marriage. If it doesn't serve you anymore, why are you in the marriage? Because what it assumes here is the purpose of not just marriage, but I think this is the overarching purpose that many people believe their their life is about is personal happiness. The purpose of my life is personal happiness. And so I look at all the different things that I do in my life, including my marriage, as a tool in order for me to achieve my personal happiness. And so it becomes a consumer relationship. It's a transaction. My marriage is as long as you give me what I want and I can give you what you want, then we'll stay married. If not, then I'll drop it because it's not fulfilling my ultimate purpose of happiness. But the scripture says, no, 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 no. Marriage is a covenant not a consumer relationship. It's not about personal happiness. It's about personal holiness. The purpose of your marriage ultimately is so that you can become more like Jesus because that's the purpose of life. The purpose of life is to become more like Jesus. And so and I want you to hear because this is if you've been sleeping, wake up real quick. The ultimate purpose of marriage is to do for your spouse what Jesus has done for you. That's the purpose of marriage, to do for your spouse what Jesus has done for you. Paul continues on and he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He says, the reason why I want you to submit to one another is not because your spouse has done something to deserve it. Not because they are bigger, they're more powerful, they're more creative, they're more intelligent, and they make the money. No, 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 no. In fact, even if they don't deserve it, I want you to submit to them. Submit means to serve them, to think of them as more than you, to do what Jesus did. So when Jesus shows us grace and love and compassion and forgiveness in the moments in which we didn't deserve it, that's what we're supposed to offer those around us, especially our spouses. Now, does this mean that they can walk all over us and we don't have any boundaries? No, 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 no. Jesus confronted in truth and in love, and he wrestled through some very difficult relational circumstances, but he always did it out of a place of selflessness, not selfishness. He wasn't trying to win. Continues on. This is where it gets real fun. He says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Again, this is so interesting. If you went back to when this was originally written, the wives hearing this would have gone, yeah, no, duh. We have to do that. If we don't, they're going to kick us out. We hear this and we go, oh, submit to you. Oh, that doesn't sound good at all. 
I think the reason is because we have a perverse understanding of what Paul is advocating here. He's not saying, wives, you're second-class citizens that used to be subjugated, that your husbands can be authoritative and authoritarian and, and overbearing. No, 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 that's not what he's talking about at all here. Let me help you see what he's talking about, which, which he says to husbands next. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they fed and cared for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. Paul brings it back to this one flesh idea. He says, treat her like you would treat yourself because she's a part of you. Remember, when you guys came together, you became this one flesh. And then he takes it up a notch and he says, actually, more than that, I want you to treat her the way Christ has treated you. Well, how has Christ, Christ treated you? He gave everything. He sacrificed everything. And so when it comes to your career and your ego and your time and your energy, and I want you to be willing to sacrifice any and everything for your wife. Now, if you pull back a little bit, and whatever this whole idea of wives submit to your husbands means, which I'll talk about in a moment, if that's the kind of husband that we're talking about, I think most wives would go, I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah, no, that sounds great. If that's the kind of husband that we're talking about here, no problem. And what does he mean by wives submit to your husbands? Well, he doesn't actually tell us. He doesn't tell us what this looks like. So I'll just give you an example of how this has played out in Amy and I's marriage. Um, we talked, I think it was um, yesterday or maybe it was Friday, that it has been 18 years since I proposed to her. And, uh, and so we've been together a while. And out of all of those years that we've been together, I have only had this happen one time. All the other times when we have a decision to make and we're discussing something, we're trying to figure out what we're supposed to do, what we do is both of us will pray and we'll come together and we'll discuss. And then usually the first time we can kind of figure out what we're supposed to do. But if it's something big and we're just not seeing eye to eye, we go back and we pray some more, we discuss. And then there's only been one time where we prayed and we discussed and we wrestled with the subject for months until we finally had to go, I don't think we're going to see eye to eye on this deal. And so here's what Amy did. One time in our marriage, after all of this, she said, I trust you, make the call. That was it. And you know how I felt at the end of that? It wasn't, I won, because I didn't win. What I felt was, here's the weight, you carry it. Because it wasn't about winning. It wasn't fighting for who was going to win. We were trying to figure this out. This was one flesh. We got to figure out what is best for us as a, a couple and as a family. And eventually when we couldn't come to that conclusion, she just goes, I trust you. Make the call. One time. So when we talk about wives, submit to your husbands. I think that's probably what it's talking about. We're one flesh. We're doing this together. And at the end of the day, all right, who's going to make that final call? But then he says this. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So he goes through this whole thing about 
husbands and wives and how to treat one another. And then he says, oh yeah, yeah, like that picture that you see right there, that's actually Christ and the church. Here's, I think, what he's saying. Is if you believe that marriage is the point, like this is where you're going to find all your love and your fulfillment, and it's going to be where you get your, your worth and your the root of your identity, and it's going to, you are going to be disappointed. Because it is not the point, but a pointer. Because what we experience in even the best of marriages is incredible intimacy, maybe a lifelong together, and then one of them will have to look at the other and say goodbye. And that can't be what I build my life on. And so what it is, is it's a pointer. It's a pointer to the love that each of us desire. It's a foretaste of what is to come. Because what it is saying is, one day, Christ is going to come to the church that's us. And we're going to be fully reunited. And all the things that we experience in our marriage, all the, that is just going to be a pointer to what we'll experience in those moments. And so it was never supposed to be the point. It was supposed to be a pointer. It was never supposed to be something that saves us. It's just something that shapes us. And so at the end of the day, the question that I started with was, well, what does it look like to be a faithful follower of Jesus in our marriages, in our families, with our kids and our friends? And Jesus' very simple but often difficult to do answer is, I want you to love them the way I have loved you. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the guidance that you give us. Um, Lord, we understand as we look at the scriptures that you have laid out this incredible plan for us, this ideal. And yet as we wrestle through what it is to be married and to have a family and to, we realize that we are far from the ideal. And that's what you have come to do is you have come to meet us in the middle of our messes in the real world in which it feels like the ideal is so far away. And so Lord, wherever our starting point is, wherever, however far away from the ideal it might feel that we are, Lord, you call us to put you first and then take that next step in following you in our marriages, in our families, in our relationships. And so, Lord God, many of us, we just dedicate once again that this week we're going to walk into the world, into our relationships, and we're going to love them the way that you have loved us. Lord, we thank you. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message, and remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings. Or you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.